Testament book of 1 Kings. If you'd read 1 Kings, uh, some verses from chapter 17 and some verses from chapter 18, 1 Kings 17. Thank you so much. Thank you, William. Thank you to our praise band. But now they give me another reason I can't sing in the praise band. It used to be because I didn't have any skinny jeans. But now it's because I don't have enough facial hair, I think, because of that. But we appreciate them, and thank you so much for leading us in worship today. What a great time to be. We're in the midst of a uh, series, and we're going to kind of have a series within the series. We've been talking about uh, for king and kingdom, recognizing the kings in the Old Testament and how they all point and are getting ready for Jesus and how we are to point, of course, to Jesus who is the king of kings. So kind of a series within a series about what God, what can God do, I guess, is the question. We recognize, though, many verses of the Bible, more than one, that says nothing is impossible with God. So we want to be able to see that God is always at work. And so in 1 Kings chapter 17, a little bit different as we talk about the story of Elijah's God. This now is the word of God. 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Chapter 18, beginning with verse 1, it says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them by fifties in a cave, fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him, fell on his face, and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hands of Ahab to kill me? And as the Lord your God lives there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you and when they would say he is not here he would take an oath of the kingdom of our nation that they had not found you and now you say go tell your Lord behold Elijah is here and as soon as I have gone from you the spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where and so when I come and tell Ahab that he cannot find you he will kill me although I your servant have feared the Lord from my youth has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave, fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. It was the old comedian who came and he said, I guess you've heard about my misfortune. My great uncle died and 
Somebody said, oh, that's bad news. He said, no, that's good news because when he died, he left me $500,000. They said, oh, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news because by the time the IRS took a look at it, I only got about half of it, $250,000. Oh, that's bad news. He said, no, that's good news because I went and bought myself an airplane and I learned how to fly. Oh, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news because the other day I was flying upside down and I fell out of the plane. He said, oh, that's bad news. He said, no, that's good news because I looked below me and I saw this big old haystack. He said, oh, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news because out of the haystack there was a big old pitchfork sticking up toward me. He said, oh, that's bad news. No, that's good news because I missed the pitchfork. Oh, that's good news. No, that's bad news because I missed the haystack too. <laughs> oh, that's bad news. He said, no, that's good news because after I bounced around a while, the ambulance came and took me to the hospital. He said, oh, that's good news. He said, no, that's bad news because when I got to the hospital, I took a turn for the nurse. said, oh, is that good news or bad news? said, well, I don't know. We got married and now we're living happily ever after. I'll have to tell you, that's not really how that joke ends. But because I'm a preacher and we're in church, I needed to keep it as clean as possible. The story of the kings in Israel is the story of the bad news and the good news. It's a lot of bad news because of the unfaithfulness of God's people and particularly the many of the kings of Israel. There is some good news because there were some kings and many prophets and others who remained loyal to the Lord God. There's some bad news because many of, the, of God's people experienced the judgment of God. But good news in that God gave Israel every chance to turn to Him and even in the worst of it, there's always a remnant of people of God who remain faithful to Him. The nation of Israel, by the time we come to this passage, they are a divided nation. They're divided between the north and the south, which sounds vaguely familiar. Both nations had become even more corrupt and ungodly. The northern kingdom was made up of the ten tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom was made up of only one tribe, the tribe of Judah. So from henceforth, as we talk about Israel and Judah, and as it's talked about in the Bible, when Israel is spoken of, it's talking about the ten northern tribes of Israel. And of course, the southern nation was considered to be Judah. We're going to work our way here for just a moment through some of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah that are mentioned in the book of 1 Kings and even before, hopefully in a way that will be expedient and communicate to everyone. Let's try it. Here's Saul. Saul started off well, but he didn't finish well. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm not an emoji kind of a guy. In fact, you may not believe this, but I've never sent an emoji on my phone. There have been times in which I've actually typed out the word emoji, happy face, or I'll type out thumbs up and send it. But for some reason, I've just never sent an emoji. But I'm going to make an exception here this time. Here was David. David, we see, David was the greatest king of Israel, greatest king of all time except for Jesus, who is the king of kings. So we've got him a happy face, a sad face, and a happy face because we understand, of course, about the sins of David as well. Solomon, we see, perhaps, is happy, sad, and sad. Solomon started off very well, could have been greater than David. He built the temple of God, but his multiple wives caused him to turn to idol worship. In fact, with Solomon, he went from bad to worse. Rehoboam, we only know him as sad, not much good about Rehoboam, a kingdom divided under him, and he made lots of bad choices. Understand that these are all descendants of David. Solomon was David's son, Rehoboam was Solomon's son, Abijah was the next son, and we see he's just kind of uh, uh, the same, more of the same, more worship of idols. Then Asa comes along. 
We have him. He is a breath of fresh air. He did as David did, got rid of all the idols that were there. In fact, his mother was considered the queen mother, but he got rid of her because she continued to worship idols and built idols to be worshipped. In fact, it was said about Asa that he wholly he true to the Lord all the days of his life in 1 Kings 15, 14. And then came the son of Asa was Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, he did as his father had done and more. He called for justice. Uh, he trusted God. He even set up uh, uh, instruction into the ways of the Lord for the rest of Israel. Now, none of these kings were perfect, and the Bible often represents that as well. But that's the southern kingdom of what began as Israel and then the southern kingdom and talked about in 1 Kings. And then there's the northern kingdom represented by Jeroboam, first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, but he is not a good one. He made up his own religion by uh, building, putting together two golden calves for the people to worship. But there's a phrase in the Bible that particularly makes it sad that he was a sad king. 2 Kings 17 and verse 21 said, He made Israel to sin a great sin. Then there was Nadab. Nadab, he walked in the way of his father, also made Israel to sin. Understand that all of these kings were not all descendants. Some were, they were all related because they're all Israelites, but not necessarily were son after each father. Baasha, in the northern kingdom, each king seems to get worse. He killed all of Nadab's relatives simply because he was mean, or maybe to protect his own kingdom, and he experienced God's judgment. Elah was sad, hard to tell, though. He, he reigned only two years, but he was killed while drunk by Zimri, the very next king. In fact, the Bible does say this was judgment on him. And Zimri comes along. He reigned only seven days. And then the very next king that would come along would come, and when they... The next king laid siege on Zimri and his household. He actually goes into his own palace, sets it on fire with him inside. So that's the sad face crying. Omri is the one who took the throne by force. And the Bible says this about Omri. He did more evil than all the kings before him. And then comes along a king that you might recognize even more, King Ahab. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you may know of King Ahab. If you don't know of King Ahab, even if you're not a student of the Bible, you certainly know of his evil wife, Queen Jezebel. Now, the Bible says about Omri that he did more evil than all the kings before him until Ahab comes along. And then he was even a worse king and even did more evil. And the only person who may have done more evil than he was Jezebel. She had the Lord's prophets killed along with many other evil acts. And together, they set up the worship of Baal, B-A-A-L. The worshipers of Baal did unmentionable acts although we probably will mention some of those maybe in the days to come. But long about the time that the northern kingdom of Israel had spiritually hit rock bottom, God's people had become a polytheistic people. They were worshiping many gods, including the introduction of Baal and many others. Worship of Yahweh had become but just a ritualistic act and was just one of many gods, according to King Ahab, according to Queen Jezebel, and unfortunately to many, or if not most, of the people in Israel. And there comes a shift in the narrative in 1 Kings and to where they've been talking about and a focus on the kings. By the time we get to 1 Kings, there is a, the writer of 1 Kings does a focus instead on prophets and others and the ways in which God would be able to use. And God is working. He's at work either to bring back the nation of Israel to him or to give fair warning. 
that judgment is coming to the people if they do not change from their idol worship, sinful lifestyle, from following other gods. In fact, we're building, and I hope you come with great anticipation, not only of today, but in the Sundays to come, and because we're building up to a great showdown on Mount Carmel between all the false gods that they are worshiping and the one true God of Israel, the one and only winner take all, so to speak. First Kings 17, Elijah shows up on the scene, seemingly out of nowhere to speak on behalf of God. He declares that because of their idol worship and their reprehensible practice, there would be no rain. There would be a famine in the land until he says different. Then God tells Elijah to go and to hide in a place east of the Jordan River. I, I want to take this opportunity to tell you that there is a time to hide. Now, not so much in uh, hiding in fear or not so much hiding and afraid that uh, you might be found out, but in the sense that if we're going to be usable in God's kingdom, ready to serve even during the difficult times, and able to overcome temptation with the Lord's help, we must hide ourselves in Christ. In fact, the psalmist says, You are my hiding place. Speaking of the Lord, You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for Your word. You might remember Psalm 119.11 that says, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. You might even remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So today when we talk about hiding, we're not talking about the sense of hiding, or not sense of cowardice, but in preparation in the sense of hiding ourselves in God. It may seem at first glance that God told Elijah to hide out of fear of being found by the evil king Ahab or his queen Jezebel as if God could not protect Elijah. But that was hardly the case. If anything, this was a time of the preparation, a time of waiting for God's timing before a great showdown is going to take place and the power of God is revealed in an undeniable way through Elijah. Probably many other reasons, perhaps, that Elijah was to go and hide. Certainly God was strengthening him and preparing him. But one of the reasons in which he was told is so that you and I might be able to learn lessons about being servants of God and lessons about God himself. For instance, God loves to use people who are nobodies. God loves to use people who are nobodies. Speaking of good news, bad news, it is bad news that God's people are being judged for their sin. It's also good news. It means that God cares. It means that he's holy. He did not have to give warning to the people of Israel. He could have simply judged them in their sins. But what he truly wanted was repentance from the people to turn to God. Like Jonah of Jonah and the well fame, in which Jonah went to preach judgment to the Ninevites. What God truly wanted was repentance, and they did repent. God truly wants his people to repent, and so he sends Elijah. Look again at 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. And there it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah is not a nobody anymore. He was used greatly by God. You might remember there was a prophecy about Elijah that one like Elijah would come before the Messiah would come. And that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. It was Elijah who was on the Mount of Transfiguration there when Jesus was transfigured. And there was Elijah and Moses and Jesus that was there. 
But he was not known before showing up here in 1 Kings 17, at least not according to the Bible. He was a Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Now, that clears up. You know exactly where he was from. Well, we know where Gilead is. Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River. Most of the tribes, not all, but most of the majority of the tribes on the west side of the Jordan River. Tishbe is assumed to be a village there in Gilead, but nobody knows. It's just a guess of where that village or where that town might have been. Now, I'm not saying that it did not exist. I certainly think that it did exist. I just think that it was, I'm, not, I'm suggesting though that it was not a well-known village. And even before this time, Elijah may not have been well-known, but he was being willing to be used by God. I do believe that sometimes God uses maybe the well-known and the brightest and the strongest. And I think of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament that was the Pharisee of Pharisees and God changed his heart on that Damascus road, used him for great things. I've even heard this week some, to some of those who were college who are now part of the NFL draft have had interviews. And I've heard them say, I just want to thank God or I just want to thank Jesus. You know what? I'm hoping that people hear that. And they even think that perhaps they want to consider Jesus. Or maybe even some won't even walk closer to him who already know him. But I've got to tell you, I think that sometimes God does use the brightest and the best among us. But and maybe sometimes the well-known, but I don't think that that's the pattern that the Lord usually uses. I think the 12 disciples were nobodies as far as the world is concerned. More often, God chooses the nobodies of this world to be the hands and the feet of the mouthpiece of Jesus. Thank goodness He wants to use people like us to do a great work, to be the salt and the light of the world, to show and to tell about God's great love and His perfect plan. We're not told how Elijah was able to have an audience with the king to tell him that there would be no rain. But James, the New Testament writer, actually gives us a little bit of a clue about it. In James chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Well, James tells us Elijah was like us. That might be a little bit hard to swallow to think that he felt like us or that he had temptations or some of the same feelings we do. But if you know the story of Elijah, you know that he was subject to depression and to loneliness. He was not a spiritual hero, at least not yet. And in truth, this is not just the story of Elijah, but it's the story of Elijah's God. It's the story of your God and my God. So if you feel that you're not really a, much of a spiritual hero, maybe even a nobody as far as the world is concerned, but you're willing to let God take center stage in your life, you might be just the kind of person that God wants to, to accomplish great things. So to get started, also, you need to know that God loves to use people who are prayer warriors. Prayer warriors. Now, I told you James 5, 17 gives us a clue of how Elijah comes to have an audience with the king. And there would be some that would contend that Elijah must have been well-known and well-respected before 1 Kings 17 to be able to speak to the king. And when he says there will be no rain, but at his word. But I would say, and James seems to agree, that it was through his prayer life that God made it possible. Through the prayer of Elijah, a three-year drought was initiated and ended, and God chose to use Elijah to show and bring judgment and to get Israel's attention. You would do well to follow Elijah's pattern for your life. In fact, I would do well to follow Elijah's pattern. And it goes like this. Be consistent and confident in your, in your prayer. Consistent in prayer in that uh, 
that you will be praying on a daily basis. Not just when you're in trouble or not just when you are in desperation. Though God does love to hear from you even when you are in desperation. I had a conversation not long ago with someone that asked them if they'd spent much time in prayer about a difficulty they were going through. And they said, well, preacher, I said, listen, I didn't call on God. I hadn't prayed a lot when I was doing good. I don't think it's right for me to pray when I'm doing bad. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the character of God. Because God is like the loving father and the prodigal son that waits for us to run to him so that he might be able to give us help. But if you've gone to God when you're in desperate need, then establish a pattern for prayer on a daily basis. A prayer that is genuine and that is seeking growth in your relationship with Jesus. Be confident also in your biblical understanding, not only of your need for prayer, but be confident that God does want to hear from you. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But also as a part of that pattern, you want to be thankful for daily provision. It was his pattern, thankful for daily provision. Prayer is a two-way street. God also wants to speak to you. We know that he speaks to us through his word. We know that if we're believers in the Lord Jesus, we know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us as well. And we know that he's speaking to us when we come and we spend some time in prayer to give us direction and to remind us some of the things that we need to know. For example, prayer helps us to be reminded of our daily provisions and things such as food and clothing and strength to work and ability to reason and common sense. Which in the words of some of my favorite radio personalities, common sense seems to be a superpower these days. But it's the Lord that gives us that. But how do we do the things we do, provide for our families? Who puts food on the table? Well, you know, ultimately God is the answer. In many other cultures, as it was in biblical times, food is much more of a daily necessity. We talk sometimes about living paycheck to paycheck. We know a lot of people in our, the world, even in our own country, that are living day to day and sometimes meal to meal and here we have Elijah that is coming letting us know that he is depending upon God Elijah was living in a time of drought yet God provided in some unique ways Elijah was fed by ravens according to chapter 17 and verse 6 until the time that the brook dried up could God have kept the brook flowing and kept ravens coming to him certainly God could have done that very thing the ravens is part of the true legend of Elijah, that Elijah was fed by ravens who brought him meat and bread twice a day. Now, was it perhaps that Elijah trained those ravens in order that they might be able to do that somehow? We know that that wasn't the case. We know that God did it. And then God sent him to be fed by a widow in chapter 17 and verse 13, a woman of faith. It's a story I think that we will save for Mother's Day. But what is it that we usually give the ladies on Mother's Day here at this church? Most of you probably know we give chocolate. We, we're going to change that to give out flowers one time, and we almost had an uproar. No, they wanted chocolate. Well, here was a lady who was putting twigs on her last piece of bread when Elijah came. And the Lord provided for both and for that family. And then Elijah was fed by an angel. In chapter 19 and verse 5, an angel in the desert. We complain sometimes about the price of eggs and potatoes. The point is not that you should feel guilty, but the point is that you should feel grateful. Hey, don't knock the mealtime prayer. Be thankful for daily provision. Recognize that it is God who gives us the ability of all the things that we do. But also, part of that pattern is from Scripture. 
that he prayed from Scripture. Use the Bible in your prayer time. Use praise and the descriptions of Jesus in your prayer. Read promises back to God. Pray the prayers of Scripture. I believe that's what Elijah did. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, it says this. It says, Take care lest your heart not be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. It's what Israel was doing. Verse 17 says, Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. Elijah was simply telling Ahab, the king of Israel, what the Bible says and what God had said. By the way, there is only way, one way in which we can truly pray from Scripture. We've got to know it. So let's continue to learn Scripture together and let's continue to encourage one another as well. But also, God loves to use people who are obedient. Who are obedient. Now, here's an example of how to remain faithful. Even when the world is falling apart. I want you to notice chapter 17 and verse 5. We read it a moment ago. It says, So he, Elijah, went and did according to the word of the Lord. And then notice chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. We didn't read these verses, but when, he, when the word of the Lord came to him, Rise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to, there to feed you. So he arose and went. And then chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So what did Elijah do? Elijah went. Is it difficult for you to know what God wants you to do? Again, you know the basics. You know the Ten Commandments. You know the Sermon on the Mount. You know the Golden Rule. You know that you're to love God. You love your neighbor. You know that you are to go and tell others. And these are basics for those who are Jesus followers. Now, we're not going to obey all of these perfectly, but if you will seek to be obedient in the things that you know to do, then the things specifically for you about God's plan will become much more clear, if not crystal clear, as you seek to be obedient. It's okay for you today to be thinking about how God can use you and His purpose for you, because God loves to use people who are obedient and faithful. We need to pause long enough to say that being faithful and obedient is what Jesus' followers are supposed to be. But it's not the way to become a Jesus follower. All people are welcome into the family of Christ. All people are encouraged, and all people certainly are invited to become into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's only by God's grace. It's only after we have determined that we know that we have a need for God and we know that we need to be forgiven of sin it is simply by asking Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin and genuinely asking Him through prayer to be your Savior and Lord as you place your faith in Him. And you believe all that the Bible says about Jesus, that you can come to know Christ. So it's our prayer today. If those who are here, someone may be listening today, that if you do not know Christ, it's not by doing good works, but it's only about how good God has been to us through our Lord Jesus and accepting the free gift of salvation. We also know there's a time to seek. We read the story a moment ago at the Lord's command. It's time for Elijah to go public. And he is seeking the king to tell him what God says about the drought. Come to find out Ahab and all of Israel is looking for Elijah. Even if they're not ready to believe in God or turn toward him, 
they apparently believed that on Elijah's word that they need to find him after three and a half years of no rain. We're going to learn a lot of lessons from Elijah in the weeks to come, but here's the one lesson I want you to learn today from Elijah's example. In 1 Kings 17, 1 and 1 Kings 18, 15, these are the two verses that we read a moment ago. We began with 17, 1. We ended with 18, 15 with some verses in between there. But notice the similarities. In the middle it says, As the Lord lives, Elijah says, before whom I stand. And then again, he says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. These kind of serve as bookends for Elijah and what he stood for. Can I tell you that when you stand before God and you stand with God, you will be ready to go. When you stand before God, you will be ready to go into all the world. There is a time to hide. There is a time to be alone with God and hide his word in your heart always. And it, this is preparation to go and seek and to seek his will. There's another fellow that is introduced in the story by the name of Obadiah. This is not the same Obadiah that will be a prophet later uh, in the Bible. But he is introduced to us as the official over Ahab's household. Sometimes he's called the governor of Ahab's palace. And Ahab and Obadiah, they're out looking for pasture land for the mules and for the horses so that they will not die. But notice, did you... Catch this, Obadiah is described as the one who feared the Lord greatly. And it says that twice it was mentioned in the passage that he saved 100 prophets, hid them in caves, brought them bread and water every day so that they would not starve after Queen Jezebel tried to kill all the prophets in the land. One reason we went through all of those kings so that you might see how bad things had gotten. But Elijah finds Obadiah and asks him to go and tell the king, Behold, Elijah is here. There's going to be a showdown. You don't want to miss it. Obadiah naturally shows apprehension. We've been looking for you for three and a half years. We've been looking everywhere for you. Other nations. Now, why, do you, why have you set me up like this, he said to Elijah. He said, because when I go tell the king that I've seen Elijah and he's not with me, I'm toast. And if I come back here particularly and you're not here, Boy, you know that it's going to be a fatal for me. But you heard Elijah, what he said. He said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will be here. Obadiah goes and tells King Ahab, he's back. This is where our story ends. But not before we learn a couple of lessons from Obadiah's example to go along with our theme for today. Some might ask, what's the man of God working for such an awful king? And certainly... We know that we need to serve only one master. But because the Bible says he feared the Lord greatly and he showed it by saving the prophets of God, God had them in a place to be used to help. And so we're going to learn three quick lessons from Obadiah's example of being in the world but not of the world. The first one is this, do your very best. Whatever you're doing, do your very, very best. The Lord says to do it as unto the Lord and not for men. How many of you have gone out to eat in the last year or two perhaps and you've gone and they've told you it'll be about 45 minutes before we're able to seat you and then you look and half the restaurant is empty. You know that we live in a day and a time that people who have a good worth ethic, those who are followers of Jesus who should have the very best work ethic, they will be noticed. Obadiah became the governor of the palace even though he was one who feared the Lord and Ahab did not. But also use your resources 
Obadiah housed and fed 100 prophets. He used his resources to save lives. You can use your resources to help others and to bring the message of salvation to many. Sometimes God uses miracles. Did you notice that? Like with Elijah, fed him by miracles three times at least. And sometimes God uses the miracle of a changed life in order to point other people to be Jesus and a changed life that's ready to be used by God. So do your best. Use your resources. Have courage. It took courage to hide the prophets from the evil queen Jezebel. It took courage to go and tell the king, Elijah is going to be waiting for you. He showed some fear, though, didn't he? That's true courage. Next time you're a little apprehensive about stepping out on faith or maybe even speaking up about Jesus in a place that you wonder how it's going to be received, remember that courage is moving forward in the face of fear. We remember some of the last words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy when he said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Hide and seek, we're talking about private and public life. So here's what I've got you, kind of a summary of what we're talking about. In your private life, exalt and lift up the name of Jesus. True character is shown by what you do in private and about your private life with the Lord Jesus. Be sure that you're always exalting, lifting up the name of Jesus in everything that you do privately and seek after him. In your public life, exalt and lift up the name of Jesus. Because you know that our walk much, our talk must match our walk. People need to be able to see Jesus in us. We need to, people need to know that if we're going to be different in this world, then people need to know it's because of the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life and in your life. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to you even now, we thank you for the story of Elijah, and we thank you that we can learn how we might be able to be used by God, be better workers, be better servants. And we thank you for what God has done and that we might be able to be part of the work that God wants to do even today. We thank you, Father, that you give us opportunity to lift up your name. We pray that we're doing that privately in our hiding place with you. We pray, Father, that we're lifting up the name of Jesus wherever we go. Father, we pray that you may continue to be at work even now. Commitments that we can make, even as believers in the Lord Jesus, to draw close to you. We pray, Father, if there are some here today that do not know you as Lord and Savior, maybe they're unsure, or someone listening today, may they know that today is the day of salvation as they call upon you and ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins and ask Christ to come in. Not by anything that we can do, but only by what God has done and what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that we've been able to celebrate today through prayers, through praise of music, through the Lord's Supper, through the proclamation of your word. May you continue to be at work. It's in Jesus' name we